Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Good morning, Dr. Smith. How are you? I'm in fine form, thank you very much. Ready to take on the science questions that South Africa has to offer. They better bring them soon. Uh, Chris, this morning, (laughs) uh, pollution and birth weight of babies, are they related? Yes, it turns out the uh, study which is in the British Medical Journal this week is the largest of its kind ever to try and explore this issue. Uh, So a lady called Mireille Toledano, who's a researcher at Imperial College in London, has over the last five years or so looked at more than half a million babies born in London And this is a a very interesting study because they've actually managed to look at where these babies are born and they've got pollution monitors in various patches of London so they can marry up to within a resolution of 20 metres the amount of pollution that a mother was subject to when she was pregnant and they've then got the birth weights of those babies and they can show a very strong relationship between babies that are born exposed to high levels of pollution and the the risk of having a baby that's too small at birth. Now, you might say there's lots of confounding factors here. Maybe people who live in an area where they're exposed to lots of pollution, maybe they also don't eat a healthy diet or they're more likely to smoke. Well, they've controlled for that in the study to the greatest extent that they can, and the effect appears to be very resilient. So it looks like largely traffic-based pollution that people are breathing in appears to, by a mechanism we don't know, but we, we know it's possible, it's biologically plausible, appears to be affecting the way that babies grow in the womb. And the other point that they make is that the gold standard for how much pollution a person should be allowed to be exposed to is currently in Britain set by the European Union and it's set across Europe. Now that level is actually almost double the amount of pollution that the people in this study were breathing in. And so this shows that the current guidelines for what we should consider safe are well in excess of what clearly is needed to produce a biological effect. So we do need to really worry. There are lots of cities in the world. Joburg is up there amongst the worst who have very bad air quality on certain days. London is also one of the world's worst performers. And it looks like we could actually be harming our future generations before they've even been born by what we're chucking out the backs of our cars. I'm wondering what are, how can one mitigate against such, I suppose the only thing is to move to the countryside if you want to uh, ensure that you have uh, babies with a uh, healthy weight. Well, actually, what uh, I spoke to Murray Toledano this week and she said, well, look, policymakers need to do something about this because at the end of the day, that's what governments are for. They're supposed to look at problems and look at uh, how to solve them. So actually legislating against this is going to be the way to do it because you can't expect millions of people to move out of cities and live in the countryside to avoid being exposed Mm -hmm. to pollution. You should avoid the pollution coming to those people. So more emphasis on cleaner fuels, fewer vehicle movements, better public transport. That's the way to go because you can then minimise the exposure without inconveniencing the people because there does appear to be an important effect here and we need to do something about this. Colin, good morning. Hi, good morning. Good morning, uh, Dr Smith. Hi, Colin. Are they, um, sorry, Dr. Smith, I'd like to find out um, 
it's, it's, it's sort of the basic. If you take a water gun and you shoot a water gun at, uh, you know, a couple of centimeters away from the wall, um, it feels as if there's more force pushing you back than if you were to squirt into the, into the air. Um, I would imagine a similar thing with uh, rocketry as well. If a rocket has to just be suspended in the air and uh, rather than taking off from a platform that is more force, can you explain why I'm, I'm you know, sort of feeling that force? Yeah, hi, Colin. Um, You're quite right to say that when you hold a hose pipe or a rocket's going up, the way this is working in terms of generating a force is that the water or the flow of gas, which is issuing from the hose pipe and the rocket respectively, are, are effectively being thrown away from you. And because of Newton's third law, for every action you feel an equal and opposite reaction, then if the hose pipe is pushing on the water in one direction, the water must push on the hose pipe in the opposite direction. But then you're saying, if I go near a wall and I hold the pipe pointing at the wall, quite close to the wall, it feels as though it's harder to hold the pipe there with the water coming out than if I stand further back. Why might this be? Well, the the same principle applies that I just outlined, that the water's being thrown out of the hose pipe and you're feeling a force from the water back the other way. But at the same time, remember that water is incompressible. And if you hold the pipe stream against the wall, then a stream of water is coming out of the hose and the water can't get out of the way quickly enough for more water to come along behind it. So therefore, there'll be a slightly higher pressure in that, in that space than when you're further away. Now, with the rocket, remember that even though it's gas, gases are fluids too. So a rocket very close to the landing stage on the ground, there will be a local increase in pressure. So the rocket will feel a bit of a force back on itself from the ground when it's very close to the ground. But the minute it gets away from the ground and the gas can flow away from the back of the rocket cleanly and easily, then the only force that's being generated there is that as the gas is thrown away from the rocket and expands out the back of the rocket being pushed out by the rocket it's pushing back on the rocket with the same force and that's where the the rocket gets its force from rockets are not lifting off because they're pushing against the ground they're lifting off because they're throwing a large mass of gas material and accelerating a large mass away from themselves and this is accelerating the rocket in the opposite direction appreciate your call there colin mark and paul uh, we see you come to you next uh, for your questions put to the naked scientist 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. At 14 minutes past 10, we take your calls for The Naked Scientist. Mark in Parktown North. Hi, Mark. Hi there, Coquette. So, hi there, Chris. Hello. Um, my question is... Hello. Hi. Um, when I switch on the kettle, um, the sound it makes early on is quite loud. And then as, it, as the water heats up and it mm. gets closer to boiling, the sound quietens down and changes in tone yes. so that just before it starts boiling it's almost completely quiet just wanted to understand how that works hello mark the reason for this is that the way a kettle works is that you're putting energy in at the bottom of the kettle the heat energy heats the water and it makes the water expand and when you have an element in there it, it makes the water expand and turn into a gas so you get these bubbles of gas the minute they move away from the element, they give all the heat energy that's keeping them as a gas away to the nearby water molecules, which are much colder, and this causes the bubble to shrink and collapse, so it goes boom, 
and you get that low-frequency rumbling sound when the kettle first begins to boil. Now, as the water becomes warmer and hotter and, and approaches boiling point, the distance that those bubbles of gas, steam, made around the element can rise through the water column before they escape from the surface become progressively greater and greater and greater. And therefore, the amount of collapsing of the bubbles that's going on becomes lower, and therefore the numbers of bubbles that go boom is lower, and therefore the intensity of that sound drops off. And that's why just as it gets to boiling point, the sound vanishes to almost zero, because all of the bubbles of boiling steam come from the element and make it to the surface and escape out of the top of the water. And uh, then, then most of the sound is just the bubbles popping at the surface. Thank you very much, Mark, for that call, because... It... This has been bugging me for a while now. Each time that I put on the kettle, there is that noise. And I've, and I've wondered, why is that the case? Because some also, Chris, sound louder than others. Well, it's partly also down to the shape of the element and the shape of the kettle and what the kettle's made of, because all of these factors will affect the way that the sound resonates and is transmitted mm. into the air. So different shapes of kettle, different kettle surfaces and different kettle materials will all shake and resonate in different ways and, and therefore make uh, louder or quieter sounds, respectively. All right, Paul is in Durbanville. Thanks for your patience, Paul. Good morning. Hi, uh, Chris. Uh, hi. Um, I want to know why a hot drink on a hot day cools you down more effectively than a cold drink. Hello, Paul. Um, I haven't seen any evidence that that's true, um, that hot drinks and cold drinks perform differently. So I'm going to take a rain check on your statement that there is a difference. But what I will say is that any drink on a hot day will cool you down because the most powerful mechanism you have for cooling is sweating. And in order to sweat, you need a surfeit of liquid in your body. In other words, you need adequate blood flow. And the way that sweat is made is that you pipe a small quantity of your blood volume through sweat glands in your skin and those sweat glands filter out the plasma, the liquid component of blood and the water is then allowed to flow onto the skin surface where a very thin film of water evaporates and takes with it latent heat of evaporation. So in other words, going from a liquid to a gas... It it can rob the skin of a huge amount of energy to break the bonds between the water molecules that keep water as a liquid when it turns into a gas. And robbing your skin of that energy has a very profound cooling effect. So any liquid that you take into your body can be able to contribute to the sweating effort and this will help to cool you down. Sweating is very, very effective. So therefore a hot drink or a cold drink Compared to the amount of energy in your body, the amount of energy in a cup of hot drink is tiny compared to the amount of energy that it will help you lose when you sweat efficiently. Chris, a question, I don't know if you've had this before, but I've, I've always wondered about this as well, that we got via the SMS line from Malcolm saying, how does rice remove moisture from a mobile phone? Yeah, there's this idea if you drop your mobile phone down the toilet or something, dump it in a bowl of rice. I I think the reason for this is if you think, well, what is rice? Rice is carbohydrate, it's starch. And the starch molecules can soak up a huge amount of water. So I suspect that by putting your phone in a jar of dry rice, then the rice uh, carbohydrates pull the water out of the air around each rice particle. If your phone's got a lot of water that it can give away, then if you make the air around it very dry, because the minute any water becomes available, some rice particles draw it in, then this helps to attract the moisture out of your phone and dry it out more rapidly, perhaps, than if you were to just leave it on a tabletop. Thank you very much for that SMS, Malcolm. You're helping me as we move along. Temba in Pretoria, good morning. 
Good morning. Um, I just wanted uh, to ask, why is the body temperature compared to the environment temperature differs? I mean, given the fact that we use the unit degree Celsius to measure both, why is the 37 degree Celsius for human body is less hot than, say, the 32 degree Celsius outside? Um, the reason that our body temperature is higher is because we are warm-blooded. We're what are called homeotherms. Homeo means staying the same. And we have evolved probably about 150 or more million years ago when the first mammals began to appear. We, we've evolved to maintain a, a steady body temperature because this enables us to have a very high metabolic rate. This is the chemical reactions that are happening in all of your cells that provide you with energy to burn. And that high metabolic rate means that you can have a very big brain. It also means that you can have muscles that are active uh, with high strength all the time. And this makes you very successful because you can live in lots of different parts of the earth. Your lifestyle is not dictated by what the weather is doing. And you're, you're more likely to be able to run and find your lunch or run away and avoid becoming lunch. So this is why warm-blooded animals are successful and, and uh, can, can flourish on earth. The price we pay for being warm-blooded is that we have to burn a lot of energy in order to supply that metabolic machine. And, uh, and that's, where, that's why we have to keep going and eating, because the energy we take into our body in the form of food keeps us warm. The set point for our body temperature in a human is 37 degrees, give or take. Other animals, it's not the same. Some animals have a slightly higher temperature they operate at. Birds operate at a higher temperature than we do. Some animals operate at a slightly lower body temperature. But the key thing is the steady state. The, the metabolism is set and your brain carefully controls your heat loss mechanisms. We talked about sweating earlier, that's one of them. And also your heat preservation mechanisms. You put a coat on in the cold, you constrict your blood vessels in your skin to avoid losing heat, you shiver, those kind of things. This keeps your body temperature at a steady level so that you can be successful. Thank you very much, Temba, for your call. Oh, in Kempton Park, hi. Hi, um, I'd like to ask a naked question. What will be the effect of gravity of, on the future should they be conceived on Mars. For example, the astronauts that goes to Mars by Mars One, NASA One project, what will that effect be on the future should they decide to have babies? And secondly, what will be the difference of people born in Mars compared to those on Earth? Interesting points, this, and um, things that people are grappling with, both ethically uh, and also physiologically, how the body works. From an ethical point of view, people are wondering, well, is it fair to inflict a Mars existence on a young child that didn't have a choice about being born on Mars, which is not its home planet and is, is not somewhere which is very nice to live, because Mars is a horrible place. Uh, there's lots of radiation, there's hardly any atmosphere, and there's no plants that you can grow there. You have to live in some kind of habby dome, so it doesn't sound like an ideal place to me um on the other hand there's also how does the body cope now we know there are problems with people traveling in space to mars the potential radiation dose that your body's going to re receive between the earth and mars is about a nine month journey at shortest that's going to be quite high and it may well be that the dna of these uh, space venturers these space pioneers who go there their dna could be damaged if you damage their dna especially in the cells that are making sperm 
you could damage your sperm DNA or your egg DNA. And this means that you may have babies that carry genetic changes or mutations. So there's a lot of risks here and a lot of unknowns um, that really have to be considered. And I don't think we have all the answers to this at the moment. Um, There shouldn't be any problem with a person once they're alive and well on Mars because Mars is a reasonably big planet. It's not as big as the Earth. It's reasonably big, though. Therefore, it has gravity uh, of almost the same magnitude, a bit less than the Earth, but not much. And gravity is very important because our body has evolved to exist in a gravity-dominated environment, and we're not healthy when we don't have any gravity. So having having uh, our feet on the ground is very important for health. So in that respect, we should be okay. But I think psychologically, ethically, and in other regards, it's not so good. Thanks, Lou, for your question. Jürgen in four ways. Hi. Hi. Um, my question is, if, um, if, if you imagine um, that we um, live in a highly populated a dry city, and we changed all the vehicles to hydrogen vehicles. Um, I, I'm assuming the byproduct of that is water. Would that actually change the climate of that city? Well, a little bit in the sense that what you're referring to is if I burn hydrogen, H2, in oxygen, O2, I, I, I do the chemical equation 2H2, two lots of hydrogen plus one O2 molecule goes to two H2O, two lots of water molecules. Then, yes, you would increase around the vehicles the amount of water a bit. But then consider that when we're burning petrol and diesel, these are hydrocarbons. In other words, chains of carbon atoms with a whole load of hydrogen in them most of the product of that combustion is carbon dioxide and, you've guessed it, water. So the cars we have at the moment are already chucking out loads of water. And that's why on a cold day, when you start your car up in the morning, if you look at the exhaust pipe, it's making steam. And that steam trail is the water from the products of combustion. So you're not really going to change that very much by burning hydrogen instead because hydrocarbons end up producing loads of water as well. Thanks for your call there, uh, Jürgen, in four ways. There are a number of SMSs that I want to get through before we run out of time. But uh, quickly, let's go to ja- John in Santon. Hi, John. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Chris. <clears throat> Excuse me. Chris, I'd just like to ask you, uh, when seniors, before seniors start, uh, start singing, when they're talking, they have heavy accents of, you know, Liverpool or Glasgow, <laughs> and they have such heavy accents when they're speaking, Yet when they sing, you do not hear the accent whatsoever. Why is this? Well, if you think about what you're doing when you're singing, you are controlling the flow of breath out of your lungs and you are making your vocal folds open and close very rapidly. Vocal fold is vocal cords. And this means that you interrupt the airflow flowing through your throat. Um, in a series of pulses and this sets up resonances or vibrations which are then amplified in your mouth and by the bones of your head and they then project out of your mouth and we hear them now when when we superimpose on that movements and shape of the mouth and the throat that that's what creates the way we sound and that's a learned process when we speak we copy the people around us which is why we have accents when you sing you're not necessarily producing those same shapes and those same sound sequences that you do when you just use normal language. You're using your voice more as an instrument. So although there will be some effect of the way in which you speak in there, because some ways of saying some words will still come out the same, you're not actually speaking and singing in the same way. The same mechanism is being used to make the sound, but the way in which you shape the sounds and add your local accent to it, that's different and therefore Although people will sound different because they're all, their mouth and head is shaped differently, the way in which they're making the sounds will differ when they sing compared with when they speak, and that's why there's a difference uh, in the accent of a singer.
Last question, Chris, via the SMS line. What happens when a person has lupus? Lupus is a medical condition. The word lupus is short for systemic lupus erythematosus. This is an autoimmune condition. Now, we don't know why this happens exactly. It's more, much more common in women than in men, and it's much more common after a person has had children, possibly because something happens to the way the immune system works when a person's pregnant and makes this more likely to happen. A person with lupus makes antibodies, or at least we can detect antibodies, in the bloodstream against certain factors which are associated with the DNA of a person's cells. And so when a cell dies you then release some of your DNA components into the bloodstream where they react with these antibodies and this causes inflammation and people can get skin rashes, they can get joint problems, it can cause problems with the brain. Lupus can damage any organ in the body and uh, it tends to be relentless because the immune system, the more practice it gets at responding to something, the better it becomes and so these things tend to accelerate and get worse and worse and the only way to control them is to give drugs that will control the immune system and there are of course side effects from this. So this is fortunately not a very common condition but common enough that doctors see it quite a lot um, but thankfully not too common um, but it, it is a nasty condition for those who have it And uh, but it can thankfully be controlled controlled with drugs that control the immune system so if people think they might have it they should get checked out chris we appreciate you uh, next week friday it is again i'm looking forward to it already great questions thanks everyone see you soon bye-bye